as we continue our series on the life and times of Abraham, the great patriarch of the Israelite nation, and in many ways the spiritual patriarch of the Christian church. We're going to be in chapter 16. We'll pick up in verse 1, and we'll read through the entirety of the chapters. Follow along in your Bibles along with me. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a male Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may shall be, so that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of the son whom Hagar had borne him, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This ends the reading of the holy and infallible word of God. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand eternally. I got a lot to get to this morning. An overwhelming amount of information to give to you and applications for you from this text, which has much going on, many moving parts and many characters. And so we're going to jump right into it. No frilly introductions Four characters for you today. The first and foremost, right at the beginning, is Sarai. Or Sarah, as I'm going to call her, just so I'm not confused the whole time. Sarah. What is the problem with Sarah? What we find with Sarah is that she is a barren woman. She is a barren woman. Now, this is the problem that we have had since always since we were first introduced to Abram and Sarah way back in chapter 11. It mentions there that she was barren at that time. And God had promised to them a child, had promised to make them into a great nation. And yet here we see probably some 10 to 15 years later, still no child. Now, this is distressing for Sarah, not only because of the theological issues of God has promised to give them a child and it hasn't happened yet, but also because she's probably physically now well beyond the years of child rearing, and it looks like God's promises are not going to come true. But beyond that, personally and existentially for her and that culture, to be barren was to mean as a woman she had no value. See, in a culture back then, you, your value for a woman was based around whether you could have children and what your children did for you and what they did, that they were great, then it meant your name was great. 
To be barren meant you had little or no value. You were fairly worthless to the people around you. That was that culture. Barrenness was significant. That was a more traditional culture. And that traditional culture lasts till today in much of the world. And yes, even in parts of America. But yet every culture has its own definition of what barrenness is. What would be America's? America, it's very difficult because we have a collide of worldviews and we have a collide of past and present, both traditional cultures and progressive cultures. So what we find in America is you have various aspects and components and little places where, in which the traditional hold, uh, your view still holds and which a woman's value is often seen by whether she can have children, whether she is married, whether she is at home with the kids. But then there's other places in America, perhaps the more predominating view in the culture, the more progressive view, is that women ought to be in the workplace. They should be holding their own. They should be making money for the family. They should be on their own. They don't need a man. They don't need children in order to be considered valuable in the world. So if you're a woman who's at home and you stay with your kids and you have three or four kids and you don't go to work, to the world, for many, you are considered not that valuable. What are you doing staying at home? That's so easy. Raising kids, send them to the school and go get a job. Or for those of you that work, traditional cultures, often the church culture is where this is found. If you're a woman who's in the workplace, either because your family needs it financially for you to be in the workplace, or because you are called there because of the gifts that God has given you, you are looked at perhaps with scorn. What are you doing going off to work? Why are you not staying home with your children? This is who you're supposed to be. And your value is diminished in the eyes of traditional cultures. The problem is we are tossed back and forth, in particular for you women. I am going to address you a number of times today because the battle here is between two women. We'll get to Abram, yes, for you men. But the battle for much of this is between Hagar and Sarah. We have competing worldviews. And I feel for those of you that have to grow up in the 20th century and the 21st century in which you hear from both the traditional and the progressive cultures and you're batted like a ping pong ball from side to side. Where is my value and where does it lie? Interestingly enough, if you go read the Proverbs 31 woman, she does both. For some reason, traditional cultures, and in particular within the church culture, we have seen and belittled those who go to women who go to work. And yet, what do we see applauded in the Proverbs 31 woman? That she makes money for her family. We see it in the New Testament. Lydia is a great dealer of, of linens and purple fabrics. They're applauded for their work, for the fact that they make money. And yet then there's some of you who are called to stay home with your children. And for you, the broader culture may say that you are worthless. So what's Sarah's problem? Sarah's problem is a traditional one. She believes that she has no value and no worth because she has no children. And so what does she do? That's her problem is her barrenness. So what's her response and her solution to her barrenness? Well, the first response is who does she blame? She blames God. She says, and it's interesting in her view of sovereignty, she knows that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. That is a comfort to some of you, and that is misery to others of you. That idea that God is the one, and she is angry at God, and she blames God for this reality in her life. But what's her solution to this problem? Her response is to blame God, but her solution is what? It's to unfaithfully take control of the situation. To unfaithfully take control of the situation. So what does she do? She gets Hagar, her servant, and she gives, it, gives her to, to Abram and says, you may have a child through Hagar. See if we can get an offspring through her. Now you have to understand that this is an ancient Near Eastern form of surrogacy. That's what this is. 
And it was culturally approved. Remember, this is a culture in which polygamy is looked upon. It is not frowned upon. It is, seems to be okay within that culture, which the way, the way they view it. And what we see is that she is taking her servant, and this is also approved in that culture, and she can claim that servant's child as her own. Hagar is a slave, and therefore any child that she has while in slavery is owned by her masters. Now, real quickly, on the issue of polygamy, but also surrogacy here, is, was it biblically okay to have multiple wives? It's interesting when people who read the Old Testament look at this and they go, why do we not hear a clear word from God very many, anywhere really in the Old Testament where God comes down and says, hey, a polygamy is bad. What we have to understand if, you actually, if we know how to read Old Testament narrative is that every time we see a man with multiple wives, how does it go for him? It ends badly for him. It is not a good thing. And which when we read the narratives, the, the leaning is always towards, hey, this is not a good idea. And the New Testament makes this clear when it talks about elders, right? A man who is going to be a leader in the church has to be a, a, a husband of one wife. So that's that issue. So here's what Sarah says. She said, listen, I'm going to have a child, but I'm going to do it through surrogacy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give Hagar to my husband. And this is, this is, this is not the appropriate way what she's after is a good thing, right? God has promised them a child. She's after the fulfillment of God's promises. But how does she go about it? In an unfaithful, controlling way that is disobedient. Very often as Christians, we are met with moral dilemmas and ethical dilemmas in which we can choose. We want, the, we want good things. But so often, so often we will, we will say the ends justify the means, but that's not the case biblically. The way it so often will work is maybe we say, well, I'm called to be married, and marriage is a really good thing for a woman, to be married. God, God's, God's calling me, and I feel that call in my life, and so I'm going to be willing to date those who maybe don't love Jesus, because God's calling me to this. Or perhaps more even to the point today, perhaps some of you, you have struggled with barrenness. I want to be sensitive to this issue but there is, with in vitro fertilization, this is a difficult ethical dilemma that is really gray and really hard to splice. But there would be the temptation for those who do say, believe that God is calling them to have children. They have that deep longing that God is, that is a good longing that God has given you. But we're going to go about it in unethical ways in order to get there. Whether it be unethical forms of IVF or surrogacy. Now, let me be very, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be very clear on this. And that is that I'm unclear on IVF and surrogacy. I have, I have two of my closest friends, brothers that have, I've walked with since I was a young child, been, who've been in my accountability group, who have done IVF, who have done even surrogacy in order to have a child. Now, the way that I trust these men, they, they studied the ethics of it, that there are various forms of IVF out there, and they looked at it, and there was ways in which they could not have, create life, and then have it put in a freezer. But you, if you're going to walk down this road, you've got to be very careful, do the research, do the scientific research. It's on my long list of things that I want to do, I want to study, but I haven't gotten to it yet. But you're, if you're going to consider this, you're going to have to walk in a very tight ethical road. You have to be very careful about life, about understanding very clearly when life begins, that it begins at conception. And does this form of getting pregnant violate that? It's an interesting subject and a dilemma for the church today. It's interesting, one of my closest friends, and I got one from growing up, and he was a roommate of mine my freshman year of college. Uh, they were in a community group with a couple that couldn't bear children. 
They would get pregnant, and her, her womb was just, I guess, inhospitable to being pregnant. And so um, my friend's wife offered to be a surrogate mother, and she carried their twins to birth. We want you guys to be really close in your community group. <laughs> I don't know that we want you to be that close. Um, you can, but you're going to put me and our elders in a very big bind as to how we lead you. This is an issue for us, but this is how Sarah goes about it. She goes about it in an unethical and immoral way, in a way in which she's taking control in order to bring out about good things, but she does it in a controlled way that is probably immoral. Well, what's the result for Sarah? Poor barren Sarah, what happens for her? Well, the mess just gets bigger, doesn't it? This is what so often happens when we take control of the things that God says he will do. What happens? She, she feels Hagar gets pregnant by Abraham, and so how does Sarah feel? Even more useless, even more devalued. Now this woman, this slave of mine, is now can get pregnant and I can't. And so what does she do? She blames Abram. Classic. And then what does she do to follow that even worse? What does she do? She goes to Abram, she, she fusses at Abram and says, Abram, this is a problem, what are you going to do about it? And what's Abram's response? We're about to get to Abram in just a minute, but it is completely unfeeling and uncaring, particularly for a woman that he just got pregnant and who's going to mother his child. What's he say? She's your slave, you do with her whatever you want. This is not a very good perspective for someone who's supposed to be the patriarch of our faith, right? He is not a perfect man by any means. So what does Sarah do? Well, it's pretty clear from the passage that she abuses Hagar. She's probably beaten. And that's what she does as a result in response to her barrenness and her anger. She beats her. That's exactly what happens. Why would Hagar flee? She would flee into the desert where she could die. She clearly thought that that was better than staying in the home. So the question is, how do you take control? How do you respond? Are you taking control in the area in which God has said, I'm going to do this? And then for so many of you, what's your area of barrenness? Where do you feel most frustrated? Where you feel the, pol- the, the culture, the expectations crushing you and, and calling you and devaluing you because of your necessarily your quote-unquote form of barrenness as the culture would see it? You ever been on Facebook? You ever seen the, pl- the, the, the blog posts of various women? Call it the mommy war- wars or the feminine wars. Even it is rages amongst Christian women very often. What do you see from blog to blog? What do you see is open letters from 24-year-old single women to moms who they feel scorned by because those women have children. They're frustrated and they're angry and they're bitter and they feel devalued. And so what do they do? They lash out on social media. It's the same thing. Then mothers respond back with more open letters to the single 25-year-old women and it goes back and forth and it's a little tit for tat and it does nothing for the relationships in the church. This is a bigger mess for Abram and Sarah because of this. And it's a bigger mess in the church because in our barrenness we get angry and we get angry at God and we get angry at those around us and we devalue others because of our area of viewed fruitlessness or fruitlessness. So we scorn others for where they are at. Brothers and sisters, may this not be. So many of us are enslaved and crushed by the expectations of our culture and so we lash out at others, and it leads nothing but more heartache and more pain and more trials for you, for others, and for the church community as a whole. All right, so that's Sarah. Next character, Abraham. So we have Sarah, the barren woman, the barren wife, and Abraham. Who is he? Well, Abraham, he is the tired leader. What's the problem for Abraham? It's probably the problem that many of you, ha- you men have, particularly you married men, or only you married men. 
What does he have on his hands? He has a very, very unhappy wife. Women, I don't want to pile on on you, but do you understand the power with which you have for the joy and joylessness of your husband's heart? Are you a bitter, nagging woman who makes his life miserable? Proverbs, thir- Proverbs talks about this. It would be better to live on the side of the roof than to live with a nagging wife. This is what Abraham, Lee has at least for the moment. This is difficult and this is hard and it's understandable. Many of you are frustrated by poor and terrible leadership from your husbands. But the call is not to be just simply unhappy and to nag. This is to take that husband before the Lord in prayer or to bring him before the elders and say he's not doing his job. You can tattle on him, that's okay. But he's not only has an unhappy wife, but you know, Abraham's probably struggling with much the same things as Sarah is. Here God has promised to make him into a great nation, to give him many children, as, as many as the saint on the seashore. The previous chapter in chapter 15 says, I'll make your children and your na- this nation as many as the stars in the sky, and yet he still has no child. He's got to be frustrated too. Abram had to be a frustrated and tired leader. He's been a great man in so many ways. He's saving kings and family members from slavery, defeating great armies, seeking to be faithful to God's promises, and yet here he is. He has no land. He has no children. And life looks pretty rough for Abraham in many ways. And for, any, for many of you men, this has been your experience. Maybe you started out strong in marriage and leading your family, but you have bumped into wall after wall after wall, and which many times you just want to throw your hands up and go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. My wife and I, we've been to counseling, and yet we still have relational conflict left and right. There's no enemy seen in our marriage. I seek to discipline my children faithfully, and yet there's, I see no contrition in my children. I seek to work really hard at, 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 my, at my job. I get multiple jobs, perhaps, and yet there's still financial issues. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And the way to the expectations of who you are supposed to be and how you're supposed to lead your family and the man you're supposed to be in this world, those expectations are crushing you in the same way that the expectations upon Sarah as a woman were crushing her. And with all this, you may still have a happy, unhappy wife, even with all your efforts at home, at work. All these things, a leader, what do they make you want to do? I know when I'm most frustrated with my weaknesses or the failings of all my activities to, get, to bring about the things that I desire to see, it's, I just want to give up. Or I just simply want to acquiesce leadership to my wife and just play the part, but that's it. This is what Abraham does. He acquiesces. I don't want to say that Abraham is simply a classic passive male here, but what he does is he dissolves down down to self-reliant leadership. What does he do? He He tries to take control of things just as Sarah did. And self-reliant leadership is always weak leadership, brothers. What does he do? He listens to the voice of his wife instead of listening to the voice of God. She is desperate for Abraham to do something for her, and he is desperate to please her and to get something done. And so just as Sarah has done, he looks down at his own devices and said, I'll get this done. I can do this in the way that Sarah suggests. But the opposite, the opposite of weak self-reliant leadership, what is that? It is God-reliant leadership. And that is actually what is juxtaposed here for Abraham. With these two women symbolize two different forms of leadership. How will he lead his family? You understand, with Sarah comes a promise. Her womb is dead. She is too old to bear children. Therefore, in order to bear a child through Sarah, who is he going to have to lean on? It's going to have to be by the miraculous work of God. He's going to have to lean upon the grace of God. Or 
he can go to Hagar and take matters into his own hands. What is this? This is a classic pitting of grace versus works. Can I do this by my own ability, by the strength of my own body, or can I, do I have to lean upon the grace and goodness of God? Paul talks about this in Galatians 4, and we'll look at that later on in the sermon. But Abraham, what does he choose? He chooses to seek out his own solutions through his own strength instead of throwing himself the grace of God. And when you do that, what happens? Just like Sarah, you make bigger messes. And in fact, what you do is you further enslave yourself. Brothers, are you feeling crushed by the expectations of the world? The expectations to be a perfect husband, a perfect father, a perfect employee, a perfect boss, all of these things, a great handyman around the house, to be gentle and kind and emotionally available, all these things that you're supposed to be. And you failing, what does Abraham do? Well, he gives it just more of himself. More of himself. Listen, more of you just makes for bigger messes. That's the truth of the scriptures. The answer is not more of you, it's more of God. It's more of his grace that you so desperately need. Abraham chooses his own way, chooses works, he chooses his own strength. And so what happens? It's an enormous, colossal mess of cosmic and historical proportions, right? What's the history between the house of Ishmael and the house of Isaac who will later come? They haven't really gotten along. We get the Arab people that come from Ishmael and then from them. The religion of Islam. This is, this is a big failing. I would say we're in a mess, right? This is what happened when men seek to go about their own devices. You get the Middle East. It appears that Abraham and Sarah's plan has worked, unfortunately. Unfortunately for all of us, their plan worked. Their old um, Scottish novelist, a guy named George MacDonald, says this, And whatever man does without God, he must either fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. I would say that Abram and Sarah have succeeded even more miserably. See, when your goal is sin, failure is a gift. But in this case, God lets Abram fail for his own sovereign purposes. So it's Sarah, the barren wife, Abram, the tired leader, and now we come to Hagar, the oppressed slave. What happens with Hagar? Abram sleeps with her, she gets pregnant. And what happens? What happens to Hagar's attitude in regards to Abram and Sarah? Well, Hagar gets a little bit too big for her britches or her skirt. <laughs> well, how does she behave towards, towards her masters here? Well, she begins to treat them with contempt. She now believes that she is higher and above Sarah. This is interesting. This is the great bouncing back and forth. At once she was the, just a, simply an oppressed slave who had no children. But now with this, in that culture where if you have children, suddenly you're great. It's the way you have your value and your worth. She now sees herself as more worthy and valuable than Sarah. And this causes a problem, causes some relational rifts. She even begins to taunt Sarah and perhaps even Abraham. What, is, what happens to her? Because of this. Well, Sarah begins to beat her, perhaps do many other things to her. She is oppressed and abused slave woman. And so what's her response? Her response is to run away. She runs away. She runs away from it all. Do you understand how devastating this would have been? To run away? It means the abuse had to be great, but what lie before Hagar was not a great life. This is not a time and place where you can simply just wander through the desert and be safe. 
She's wandered out in the desert trying to get back to Egypt, and the angel of the Lord, which we're going to see in just a minute, finds her at a well. This is a time in which there is, it is lawless. She is a single slave woman. She is not going to last two weeks. This is where her arrogance, her running away has left her because she is, once again, just like the other two, taking control of the situation herself. Well, this story is a big fat mess, isn't it? Three people, none of them perfect, all of them pretty messed up. But fortunately, as there is so often and so commonly in the scriptures, there is another character in the story. It is the fourth character, and that is the God who sees. The fourth character is the God, the one who sees. Pick it up in verse 7, read along with me. We'll read through the rest of the chapter. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for, for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar is blown away. She is. She's blown away. In the nature of her, of her response. And what is she blown away by? What is she amazed by? What has Hagar completely aghast? That Yahweh, that's the name that's word used there for the Lord. So she's invoking Abraham's God. That Yahweh would see her. Little, lowly, slave, Egyptian girl. Hagar, God sees her. And this is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. That God sees the oppressed. He sees our deepest needs. He sees our deepest brokenness. He sees our deepest sins. This runs throughout. God sees and God hears. You remember, the original audience, we haven't addressed this in a long time in the story of Abraham, but the original audience is the audience that has come out of Egypt and are receiving God's word. Now here's what it says to them in Exodus 3 and what, they, what happens with them. It said this in Exodus 3, talking about those people. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. The Israelites are supposed to see their story in the story of an Egyptian slave. That is the tables turned, right? This is a story of grace. Do you see this? Who is it that is the abuser in this story? It is Sarai, the matriarch of the Israelite family. And she's abusing who? An, Israel, an Egyptian slave. What has Israel just come out of? They have just been the Israelite people abused as slaves by the Egyptians. And here's the beautiful truth. God sees them both. God sees them both, whether Egyptian or Jew, whether Muslim or Jew, whether Christian or non-Christian. This is a theme that runs throughout. God hears his people. He sees people in their distress. What happens with Hannah? Same exact situation in 1 Samuel 1. She's being made fun of by the other wife. And so what does she do? She cries out to God, and God hears her cries. He sees her. What does she say? Here's her prayer. What does she want? She wants God to see her. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. See my affliction. Genesis 29. This is the same thing that happens to Leah. Barren women. Women who have struggled to get pregnant. Women who desire to be married and have no children. God sees you. This is a theme throughout the scriptures. 
God saw Elizabeth when she was barren. God is the one who controls the womb. Psalm 31, 7, we hear it from David. He says this, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. To have God see you is to have a God who intervenes and pursues you and cares for you. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a great preacher in the mid part of the 20th century, says this about this passage. He says, we see here that God never fails to see what is going on and that he is vitally interested in everything that touches one of his creatures, all of his creatures. We may attempt to run away from the things that happen to us, but two things we can never get away from. We cannot elude ourselves. We cannot and we cannot get away from God. We cannot elude ourselves and we cannot get beyond God. As David put it, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me and thy right hand shall uphold me. This is the sweet truth of the scriptures and it's good news. We have a seeing God who sees our deepest brokenness, who sees our deepest longings and he pursues and he intervenes right there. Now there is something interesting about this. And what he asks her to do, it's fairly controversial, wouldn't you think? God asks Hagar to do what? To go back into slavery. Now, this is not condoning slavery. Why would he call a woman who is being abused by these people to go back into that situation? Now, listen to me. If you're a wife and you have an abusive husband and you come to me and you say your husband's abusing you, I will never tell you to go home. I don't have the right to say that. That is an issue between you and God to be called to do such a thing. You better not take children back in. But that is an issue between you and God whether you go back into that household. But here we see God calling an abused woman to go back home. Now why? Why would God do this? Because going back home, you see, God is the one who sees the beginning from the end. What does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? We, we put it on coffee cups and posters. For I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you and to bless you. Where is the place of blessing? What has God said to Abram earlier on? I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. To be a part of the house of Abraham is to be blessed. And while she may go back to abuse at first, what does God then give her? He says, you will be blessed. And he gives her a blessing that every woman on earth at that time would have wanted to hear, that he will make her again into a great nation. Many peoples will come from her womb. He says, I was going to bless you. God knows the plan he has for Hagar, and he knows the plan he has for us. See, being a part of, the Abraham, part of the family of Abraham was to be blessed. That's why God can call her back. Only God can make that call. Not me, not you, but God can, and he commands her. And here's the crazy thing. Hagar obeys. In this story, here's the astonishing thing for the first century Israelites, reading, or the first generation Israelites reading this, is Sarah doesn't obey God in light of his promises. Abraham doesn't obey God in light of his promises. Who obeys? The Egyptian obeys. This has got to be a rather slap in the face. Or a slap in the face of a healthy dose of grace. That God says to the people of Israel, I have chosen you not because you're so great and so wonderful and so beautiful. I have chosen you simply because I see you and I have called you out. No one's obeyed. No one obeys here but Hagar. And the message for, for first-generation Israel is, if Hagar would believe God's promises, how much more should you believe God's promises and live in light of them and obey me? Because I have given you and promised you infinitely more than I have promised Hagar. That's the call. That's the call. That's the imperative. But there's an indicative here as well that follows the same strain of thought. 
See, the main lesson for the original leaders and for us is this. If God sees the needs and cares for the needs of a lowly Egyptian slave woman, how much more, O Israel, does he care about your needs? How much more does he provide for your needs? And here's the thing. How does Hagar know that God sees her? How does she know? You can't, he's the unseen God. What has to happen for her to know that God sees her? God has to show up. What happens here? There is this bizarre character at the right there at the beginning of verse 7 called the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Now there is debate amongst commentators, but the consensus has become that who this is is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus in layman's terms. Before he is named Jesus. It is natural to think that this is just an angel because that's what the English translation says. But in the Hebrew, it's literally just the, the generic word for messenger. Now, there was angels who came to Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth, and we see angels at various times, right? And that's a particular spiritual class of people in heaven that God has created. But what we see here is this person is called the messenger, the messenger above all messengers. And then what does Hagar say about him? She declares that this angel of the Lord is divine. She calls him God. She says, I have seen God. God has seen me. This is no mere angel. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus coming before he has come. And who does he come to? Well, he always comes to. Who does he come to in the New Testament? The poor and the broken. A poor slave girl. Now Hagar sees that God has shown up. She sees that God sees her because she can see him and how he has moved and how he has acted. But Hagar, Hagar also understands that she is flabbergasted by the fact that how can God see me? I am unholy. Think about the idea. God sees you. Yay! Oh no! He loves me. Oh wait! I just ran away from the blessed family. How, does, how do Adam and Eve respond when God says, comes out and says, I want to see you? After they've sinned, they hid. They covered themselves up. You know how we can know we can see seeing God as a blessing and not a curse? Like it normally is in the scriptures. Being seen by God as a blessing and not a curse. But the only way, the only way that you can see that as a blessing and not a curse is the fact that God, there was a day when God looked upon his son and it was not blessed for him. It was a cursing. Because he didn't look upon him. What did he do? He turned his face away from him. See, the reason why we had a son that came was, and the reason why we can be blessed when God looks upon us and why he sees you and me is because there was a day on a cross when the perfect son of God had his father turn his face away. We're about to sing that in just a few minutes, that sweet truth. Now, that's actually never in the scriptures. It never says that God turns his face away. How do we know? The high point of God's blessing is in the ironic benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I give it to that to you almost every week. The high point of being known and being loved by God is for God to see, to look upon you. But what does Jesus say on the cross? He is a man who is cursed. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus doesn't get the ironic benediction. Here's what it went for Jesus. He said this, may the Lord curse you and reject you. May the Lord turn his face from you and exact his wrath against you. May the Lord turn his countenance away from you and give you hell. That's what Jesus got. 
Jesus drank up the full cup of God's wrath so that when God sees us, there is no wrath left for you and me. There is merely blessing and love and care. And what happens? The wonder of the story is that Jesus didn't just simply drink up the cup of wrath, but what happens at the end of the story, or as the story goes on, he is raised to life so that who may have Christ? Who gets Christ? We do. And who is Christ? He is the Son of God. What does every character in this story want? What do they all need? They all need a son. Sarah needs a son. Abraham needs a son. Hagar needs a son. The beautiful beautiful truth of the gospel is that we have been given a son. We have been given his righteousness. We have been united to him, and he is ours forever. And so in Jesus Christ, what do you have? You have everything you need. You are not barren. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come to give life and life abundant. If you have Jesus, you have life and you have life abundant. And you do not have to be crushed by the expectations of this world. You don't have to be crushed by the value system of this world that says you have to stay home or you have to go to work. You have to be this perfect leader. No, no, you don't have to be crushed by those things anymore. Because you have everything you need. God has deemed you valuable and worthy in his sight. And if you know that to the degree that you know that you have the son, you know what you have? You have freedom. You have freedom from all the books that declare what kind of parent you should be. You have freedom from the cultural expectations that tell you what kind of father you should be, what kind of mother you should be, what kind of woman you should be. This is freedom. The freedom of the grace of the gospel. That you're not compelled and batted back and forth by the varying voices that are in your head. So barren woman, do you see this, that you are free? This is exactly what Paul talks about in Galatians 4. It's interesting. Paul in Galatians 4 compares Hagar and Sarah and uses them as an allegory. He says Hagar is a woman under sla- who is enslaved by the law. She represents living under the law, being batted back and forth by the demands that are constantly upon you. It's to be enslaved. But then he says of Sarah, Sarah is living under the promise. It's living in freedom. And here's what he says. He quotes Isaiah 54.1. It says this, Sing and rejoice, O barren one. Who did not bear? Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that the children of the barren woman, if she is in Christ Jesus, she is infinitely more fruitful than the woman who has many children. Because in Christ Jesus, you have everything. What Paul is giving us here is an eternal and spiritual perspective of what fruitfulness is. God sees that we are being crushed under the weight of the expectations around us. We're being batted back and forth, that we have no value and barrenness dogs us. So what does he say? He says, no, 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 you're free. I'm going to give you a whole new way of seeing fruitfulness. Fruitfulness comes by having the Son And by living in light of his promises, you have everything in him. And so now, because of that, you're not torn and batted back and forth. What can you do? You now go make disciples. That's what he says. Therefore, if you're a woman in the workforce, what are you supposed to do? You're going to bear fruit. How? By bearing spiritual fruit, both in your life, the fruits of the Spirit, and making disciples. You're going to bring people to Jesus, and you're going to disciple women. You're a young woman who's married but has no children yet. You can do the same thing. You can use the time that God has given you to disciple others to make your life a beautiful fruit platter before the Lord and before the world of righteousness. This is not drab. This is not trite application. This is who you get to be. And if you're a mom and you have five snotty-nosed kids at home and you'd much rather be somewhere else, guess what you get to do? You get to do the same thing. You get to bear fruit of peace and patience and you get to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the same perspective across the board. There is no being batted back and forth anymore. And what about you men? 
exhausted leaders with frustrated families and you're frustrated with yourself and you're crushed by the expectations around you, you get to live in freedom too. You're tired. Brothers, turn away from your own self-reliance. Where do you need to go back to? Listen, I don't have all the answers of how you achieve all the things that maybe God wants you to achieve. All the wisdom, the way you need to apply the gospel in all these various ways. But here's what you need to do, brothers. You need to go back to the very beginning, to the very core of what we're about, to the truth that there is one who has done everything for you. And start leading without, stop leading out of your own sufficiency in which it says, hey guys, I'm the leader, look at me. That's exactly the opposite of the point. As a leader, you go, no, no, I'm not going to point you to me anymore and my sufficiency anymore. I'm going to point to his sufficiency and his alone. And you take your family there. So you got a child rebelling. Here's the answer. It's trite, maybe. It's too simplistic. There's much wisdom to be applied here. But it has to begin back here. Son, go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus. You have an unhappy wife. Life is hard and there's good reasons for her to be unhappy. You point her to Jesus. And then you work out from there. Tired leader, go back to the one who is sufficient. He's better than you. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to learn the catechism verse passage. of The shorter, Westminster Shorter Catechism has this little blurb that I've been teaching my son. And it goes like this. It's this question. Can you see God? Can you see God? The answer to the catechism is this. No. But he always sees me. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, we thank you that we can, we men who are painfully and acutely aware of our failings as leaders, who know that we're weak, that we can be laid bare before you and the shame of all of our brokenness and our weakness. And yet we can do it with confidence, knowing that you're going to look at us and you're going to say, you are approved in my sight because there was a son, there was a perfect son who did everything right. Gracious God, I pray that we'd run back to that time and time again and that it would then energize us to re-engage with our families, to lead out of, not crushed under the weight of the expectations but free to lead out of the freedom of the grace of God. Gracious God, I pray that you'd, you'd give our women in this room, those who are young and those who are old, the ability to go to work and go to work with freedom, even if they have kids at home, saying, this is what God has called me to do, and I'm going to be faithful to this for here and now. This is the season he's called me to. And my worth and my value is not determined on whether I'm home or not. Or the mom who gets up day in, day out at 6 a.m., and cares for her children all day long, who changes the poopy diapers, who disciplines faithfully, and who's exhausted and weary, who's crushed by her failings, gracious God, who's told by a world that she, she should just go get a job. May she be free. May she be free of those expectations and know in Christ there is freedom, and we are free indeed. May she live on that and feed upon that, and may it energize us to love others, to love the Hagars of the world as you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.